Good morning. Good to see you guys. Uh, we're going to open up the Word, and we are going to hear from God, so it's appropriate that we start by praying. I would invite you to take a second if you want, close your eyes, take a few deep breaths, and just sit there for a good 10, 15 seconds, and I'm going to give you a moment to pray even internally yourself. And if there's anything that you need to hear from God through the Holy Spirit, just let him know. We'll just sit quiet for a second. And as every week, Jesus, there are so many of us in this room who are uh, excited, expectant, looking forward to hear you and see you come to us clothed in scripture. There are many of us who are discouraged and just really need you to pick us up. Uh, And there are many of us, Lord, who need just truth to be spoken over us. And so I pray that as uh, as we open up your word, that you'd speak through me and that you would fill in the gaps, Lord, and where I am lacking, that we might at the end of this time see you, Jesus, more clearly. Amen. Uh, we are uh, going to kick off a new series today in the book of 1 John. It's going to carry us through the entire summer long. Uh, and as I've been prepping through, thinking through what we're going to talk about this first Sunday, uh, there's this, this like new theme that I kept noticing on social media or even just in people talking about, uh, just a new category of thinking of four things. It's something called core memories. Um, I don't know if you guys ever heard of this. I, I thought it was like a, like a real psychological term. Turns out it's not. Uh, it was invented by Pixar's Inside Out. <laughs> um, and how it plays itself out now is you'll see people posting videos on YouTube or TikTok where there'll be like 10, you know, uh, 10 top snacks from 90s childhood, and then you'll be watching them, and then you'll see Jolly Ranchers, and people will be like, ah, core memory unlocked. Um, and it's kind of this silly way to talk about like really significant memories in your past uh, that kind of like trigger some type of like nostalgia or awareness. And it comes from Inside Out, which if you've never seen, amazing movie. Uh, where at the beginning, uh, it's inside this little girl's mind, and they're looking at these like marble type things that each represent these core memories of this girl, Riley. And they are memories that will shape her personality, what she thinks about herself, and what she thinks about the world, which I do love that idea. Because in the end, I think all of us do have really profound memories, whether we're aware of them or not, that shape what we believe to be true about ourselves and about the world we live in. And as you get older, uh, you will notice uh, if you're talking to uh, someone who's lived longer than you, wise, uh, they might have like these little phrases they'll throw out there that are like these short, little simple sayings uh, that you can kind of like blow off, right? Like, how are you doing? Ah, better than I deserve. And you'll be like, all right, whatever. And But if you were to ask people to like fill in the blanks of what what memories, what experiences in life have you had that inform these simple sayings, you actually can get a lot out of that. So for example, uh, John Crawford 
one of the pastors here, he's got a saying, he says, uh, something that he believes in is that there's no such thing as quality time without quantity of time. And if you were to ask him like, oh, what, like, he would probably tell you different stories, experiences he's had of community within the church and friendship that just needed time and actual face-to-face interaction for there to be any kind of depth, right? There's a story behind some of these really simple phrases and sayings. And so I think that's actually a helpful category because as we jump into 1 John, right, this book, usually we'll start off on a Sunday and we'll just dive into chapter one. I thought it might be helpful actually if rather than doing that, which we usually do and we will starting next week, we take the entire book as an overview. And here's how 1 John works. It's not linear, right? It doesn't have a start and then just like goes and it's very clear where to follow. 1 John works kind of like a good song. You got a chorus and then it's got a bridge that moves into other things that it might say. And then the chorus comes back again. And then it goes off into some other things that it's going to say. And then the chorus comes back again. John has like a few, few things to say, two that I'm going to highlight. And he's going to say them over and over again. And what I hope is that we would take today to begin to ask, out of these simple phrases that John says, what are the core memories behind them for him who wrote the book? So that as we keep going on in the coming weeks, right, my dream is that all of us at a church, we would take these simple sayings and that we would not just be like, oh yeah, that's good, I love it, but we would adopt them for our own life, that we internalize them. So here are the two sayings that we're going to talk about today. The first one is this, God is light. God is light. The second thing that he's going to say God is love. God is light and God is love. And you're going to see these themes kind of resurface up again and again and again. Even when he's not explicitly saying these things, these things are in the back of his head again and again as he's going. And I don't want us just to hear these simplistic type sayings and miss the fact that they are profoundly and deeply true. So what we're going to do is begin to ask the question, who's John? Why did he write this book? And what are the core memories that are behind each of these sayings? So I want you to look at 1 John with me. The very first words in the book of 1 John, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John was one of the 12 apostles. And it began one day in ancient Israel where he, along with his brother, was just an average Jewish fisherman guy. And one day he was mending the nets that they were meant to catch fish with and they're just hanging out, probably talking about like, I don't know, either stuff that they're excited about in the future or Rome and the frustrations that they had. And along comes another Jewish man named Jesus. And Jesus says to John, I want you to follow me. And so I don't know if there was more of that conversation because John just gets up and goes with him. And I wonder though, at what point John began to internalize, there's something going on with this Jesus guy. 
Like he is way more than a religious rabbi teacher like we've had before. I wonder if it was like when he realized that Jesus is just starting to like collect all these other guys, like there's 12 of us. Is that like on purpose? Jesus? Like, what are you doing with like Peter? He's kind of obnoxious. I wonder if it may have been like the point where Jesus is preaching and he's like, we're going to feed these people. And all the apostles are like, there are 5,000 of them, Jesus. And someone, I don't know if they were being smart. I'd imagine they were kind of be funny with Jesus. They're like, we got five loaves. And Jesus is like, good. I wonder if at that moment, John is like ripping off pieces of bread and he's handing it to someone. And then he's like, I wonder if it's at that moment where he's like, this is not just your average guy. He's not just a religious teacher. Something is different about this Jesus. When he begins this letter to the churches, likely in Asia, is probably the church in Ephesus. When John's writing to him and he begins, hey, this is not something that is just theoretical for me. My hands have touched, my ears have heard, my eyes have seen. What he is saying is, my hands touch the scars of Jesus. When I say I heard, I know what it sounds like when Jesus would clear his throat before he began to preach. When I say I saw, it's not just a story for John that Jesus walked on water. He has that memory internalized in himself. And so what he begins in this letter that he wants the church back then and all of us to know is that this comes from all core memories. (laughs) This is all from his experience of a life lived with Jesus. And I want us to keep asking of each of those phrases, what experiences of Jesus led to him deciding this needs to be repeated again and again, that God is light and God is love. What's so interesting about 1 John is it is in all likelihood written at the very end of John's life. And if you follow the biblical story, what you'll see is there's this moment where Jesus is talking to John and insinuates that John is going to live longer than the rest of the apostles. He was the last living apostle. And so what you know about just people and life is the older you get, most often, you begin to accrue more suffering, more traumatic memories. And there are some scholars who will talk about three core traumas in John's life that shape the rest of him. The first one is the death of Jesus, but let me put it this way. He watched his best friend get tortured to death. The second one is that later on in the book of Acts, we find that John had to experience the trauma of his brother James being taken away and beheaded by Herod. And the third is that because he was alive the longest, he would have seen the fall of Jerusalem, one of the most atrocious acts of genocide in the ancient world where Rome just marched in and raised that place to the ground. And John, as a Jew, would have experienced basically the end of temple Judaism and the massacre of so many of his people. Not to mention the fact that given he's the last apostle alive, he's watched every other 11 apostle get murdered for their faith. So keep that in your mind. Because if you were to imagine sitting down with someone who's like, yeah, I'll tell you my story. I watched my best friend get tortured to death and uh, my brother was beheaded. I'd imagine like if you were to be like, hey, what, what have you learned about life from that? The answer coming out of their mouth might not necessarily be, you know, God is light. 
That is the last thing I would expect from somebody who had gone through that kind of trauma. Yet, that's exactly what comes out of his mouth in the book of John. God is light. God is love. And so I want to start off with that first one. God is light. So the way that you're going to see that showing up throughout the book of 1 John is he's going to talk, and it starts in 1 John 1, 5. And I'll just pause for a second. Again, we're not going to go through like the entire book in one sitting. There's no way I would try to do that. So it means I'm going to bounce around and we're going to cover some big themes and ideas and I might pluck from different phrases. And so you guys got to bear with me in that we might not slow down long enough to unpack each of these. We're going to do that in the coming weeks. Is that, is that cool? Great. If you guys said no, I already wrote my sermon, so we're doing it anyway. So 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If you were to summarize what this theme will mean throughout the rest of 1 John, it is this. God is the definition of what is true and what is good. God is the definition for what is true and what is good. And you'll see that as he begins to unpack implications for, if God is light, then we are to live in a certain way. If God is truth, you need to cling to the truth. And all of these will unpack from this idea that for him, truth is a person. So if you were to ask, God is light, got it. What's that core memory that's going to inform this idea, John? Here's what I think it probably is. Back in the Gospel of John, which again, that's actually written by the same person, John tells a story. And here's how the story goes. Jesus is getting really popular, and with that popularity comes a lot of animosity, and people are now trying to kill him from within the religious groups of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so there's this huge festival going on, this big party where everyone together in the Jewish tradition is going to go to Jerusalem and celebrate the harvest. God provided for us. He is so good. Let's all do a camp out trip and celebrate. That was the Feast of Tabernacles. And so the apostles come to Jesus. John's obviously there with them, right? And some of his family members, actually, Jesus' family members are like, hey, like, you should go and be public and preach there. Nobody knows necessarily who you are. You should, you should make it more obvious. And Jesus actually refuses to go on that trip with them at first. He decides later to go secretly on his own time. And so I'd imagine that John is there at the celebration and he's with Jesus and he sees in this moment, Jesus just get up in the middle of the celebration And Jesus, clearing his throat to preach a message to all of these people, and he says, here's the deal, I am the light of the world. Which is a pretty crazy claim for anybody to claim. And I'd imagine that John probably feels internally the tension of such a claim as he knows, okay, people are going to try to kill Jesus now. So much so, I think, that this real, this idea began to get synthesized and boiled down when Jesus was murdered, resurrected from the dead, and then Jesus came to the apostles and was like, touch the holes in my hands. Put your finger in my side. 
For John, truth is a person. And that is profoundly important for this church who is getting these letters to understand. Let me tell you why. So if you read through the book a couple of times in a row and you just begin to ask yourself what might be going on that John is writing this letter, you will come to the conclusion that there's quite a bit of division going on in the church. Most scholars think that actually at the exact same time that this is happening, there is an explosion of a new religion, a new religious tradition called Gnosticism. And what Gnosticism did is it kind of remixed the story of creation, and it would kind of like adopt and pull from everything. It would pull from Christianity and Judaism, and it would pull from Greek traditions. It didn't really care what it pulled from. It just kind of grabbed everything together. And the two things that it really taught in Gnosticism were this. Matter, the material, is gross. Not good. We don't like it. You are trying to escape from reality. The the story went that, you know, God who made the world, he didn't actually make the world. Another lesser deity who was actually evil made the world. And each and every one of you guys is actually a divine spark trapped within a body. And so it would place an important amount of emphasis, right, on, on a few things, right? What you do with the body doesn't really matter. The second thing is that you would obtain salvation through a secret knowledge. Jake, why does this even matter? Well, here's why I promise you it it actually matters to know. John wants them to understand that if the truth is Jesus, it's not some secret knowledge. And there's another thing that you can tell as you read through the book of John that is coming up, which is this group of people, they had broken from the church And then we're coming back full circle and beginning to try to draw people away from the church saying, God didn't really become a human being, right? Because if you're a Gnostic, God would never put on the gross thing as a body. So it was like flipped, right? Where in modern society, we might have a hard time thinking that Jesus could be God. Theirs was opposite. They're like, God could never be a human being. And so why that matter for the first church is John is writing to them explicitly and he wants them to cling on to the truth and that truth is a person, not an idea, a person with real flesh and blood who lived on the earth. And for John, he'll emphasize again and again, he'll keep coming back to this good news message where he will tell them explicitly, even though he tells them, I know you already know this, but Jesus was the son of God the living God who made the world in the flesh, and he came to die for your sins and so that you might become children of God. And so he's he's reaffirming to them things that they already know, but he wants them to understand. This is the truth. You can't flinch from it. You can't veer from it. He wants them to understand that truth is a person. Here's why I think that we actually need to hear this today. In our world, in our culture, truth is you. We are the truth. As the modern mindset would go, truth is defined by whatever your experience might be internally. 
And what I think it might be really different to note too, right? So John is, ex- is talking about his experience with Jesus, but what he is pointing to is a historical person and something that happened in history. Whereas our definition of truth today has way more to do with whatever I feel. And where that gets played out both back then and today is if truth is whatever you feel, then you can do whatever you want. That's why John will talk about this category of darkness and light. God is light, not darkness. So we can't walk in darkness because today I think we do not like ideas of black and white. In fact, read through 1 John. If, you start, if you've already started reading through 1 John in the, in the Worship and Wonder series, like a chapter a day, you're already starting to feel some of the discomfort that comes with it because John is so black and white. He's like, you are either for Christ or you're an antichrist. And you're like, whoa, I don't even know what that means. But it sounds bad, John. Or he says, you're either walking in love or you can't say that you actually follow God. You're like, oh, is there like a, like a middle ground? Like, and so the reason that it is so black and white within this is that John is trying to drive home that both light and love, but particularly in here, what is true is a man named Jesus and we cannot flinch from that. And that will have implications for the rest of life. We'll talk way more about this as we get further into 1 John, but here's some of the, I think, the implications for them and I think for us, the topics that will need to be talked through and come up. John warns them. He tell, it was cool, if you read the book, he talks all the time. He goes, this is why I'm writing to you. And then he says it, which is so helpful. And one of the reasons that he says is, I am writing so that you will not sin. And there's a couple of categories in 1 John 2 he talks about. He goes, the lust of the body, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So the the main problems that were happening in the church then that I think speak a lot to today were, what do you do with your desires What do you do with your sexual ethic and your body? And what do you do with pride, especially religious pride? Because that's what they were dealing with. And that's something that we will unpack further in the coming weeks. But really the point at the end of the day for John is you need to understand that Jesus is the truth. Truth is in God's God's realm of things, like as a Christian, we don't believe that truth is a dictionary definition. It's a person who lived in history. And so how we live is defined based off of who he is. So the second thing that is gonna come up again and again, right? That first musical note, God is love. The second one, or sorry, the first one is God is light. The second one is God is love. And where I think the first one, as you're reading through 1 John, will create this sense of like tension, of like, gosh, this seems so black and white. The second one, I think, is one of the ones where even in today's day and age, the idea, God is love. I I rarely have ever heard anybody push back on that. So much so that I think it's one of those ones where like, yeah, God is love. And we move right on without really realizing what John means when he says God is love. Because it's gonna matter again what his experiences that he's drawing from in the man Jesus. When he says God is love, what does he mean? And it's one of those kind of phrases that I think we, we've gotten used to almost, right? So it seems like, like if I preach a sermon on like God is love, everyone will be like, yes, those who have gone to church. 
So much so that there's, there's a story where John, who wrote this, here's how the story goes. The church in Ephesus was like, guess what? We're getting a guest pastor. He's going to come and preach a message to us. And everyone's like, gosh, who is it? Oh my gosh, this is amazing. Well, it's actually John who lived with Jesus and saw him. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, John, the apostle, he's going to preach a message? This is going to be amazing. I'm going to call all my friends. And, and so John then, who is so old in his age that he cannot take care of himself, is carried on to their version of stage, right? Stands in front of the whole church and they give the introduction. This is who John is. All right, John, what is your word for us? What are you going to say? And it says this. He gets up and he says, little children love one another. And then he gets off stage. And I'm sure in that moment, there was like 50% of the people were like, wow. <laughs> but like, now nah, let's be real, probably more like 70% of the people were like, that was it? Like if I did that today, you guys would be like, Jake, they're paying you for this? Uh, I just checked my kids into student ministry and I got like another 30 minutes of a break. So you better get back up there and tell some stories, man. And so how the legend goes is that someone finally does say, uh, at last weary that he always spoke the same words because he kept coming back every week and saying the same thing. So I don't know how, it's like three times, five times. At what point do you go like, dude, we got it. And so they say, master, why do you always say this? Because, he replied, it is the Lord's command. And if this is only done, it is enough. So God is love is one of those phrases that we need to understand the backstory when John has his mind, what he, what he actually means by love. And you're going to see this repeatedly show up in a couple of ways in 1 John talking about God's love for us, our love for one another, and the constant affirmation that they, we are to remain in the love of Jesus. And so that's how you're going to see it as we go through and preach in the, in the next couple of weeks. But what is, you know, what's the like John's little marble core memory for God is love? Here's what I think it is. We all kind of know that uh, some of the apostles were there when Jesus was crucified. But I think what we often miss unless we slow down is John was there and watched his best friend get tortured for hours. And then when they hung Jesus on the cross, John was right there. And you know who John was standing next to? Jesus' mom. And so the whole time I imagine that Jesus is getting tortured and dying, he is standing next to Mary and Mary is wailing. And so he's looking at Jesus. And as the gospels tell us, Jesus does a couple of things in his last bit of life. Because all the while Jesus had preached a message of love. Then he's dying. And the men who had just pounded nails into his hands are on the ground and they're gambling over Jesus' outer garment. It's likely that Jesus is naked. 
And so they're gambling over his last bits of clothes. John is looking at Jesus, and Jesus is slowly suffocating to death. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then as the hours go on and Jesus suffers more, he looks down at John and he goes, John, this is now your mother. And he points to Mary. And then he looks at Mary, his mom, and he says, this is now your son, and he points to John. And from that day on, John took Mary into his home and lived with the mother of Jesus. I believe that those kind of stories are in the back of his mind every time he says God is love. Because God is love is a statement that in 1 John means this. Love is a person who lived at a real time in history, who died, actually died a death, a cruel death for you. And that is the core of the good news that he preaches again and again and again. This is love that God gave his son for you. Because the sin that you and I deserve death for is put on Jesus. And even as his enemies are seeking to destroy him, Jesus is preaching forgiveness and taking care of his mom. That's in the back of John's mind. When he says God is love, it's a man named Jesus. Love is not a dictionary definition. It's a person which was so profoundly important for the early church to know because if your story is Gnosticism and what you do in the body does not matter and really you pride yourself on the enlightenment that you've received, there's really no real priority for loving each other in real time. Why? This world is transient, it's moving on, these relationships don't matter. And so John drills in on that like crazy. I think that we need this big time to speak today because this ends up being one of the things that I create. I think it creates a lot of tension for us. We know that Christians should be loving, but then we allow culture to define what love is. In our culture, love is defined very differently than how it's defined in the Bible. Really, love is within our culture uh, as broad as whatever you want it to be. But again, it matches this newborn spirit of Gnosticism where the, you know, the truth is within yourself, and so then love is actually whatever you decide love is internally. And so then how it often gets defined is uh, love has to do with a myriad of things, but it is so shifting and it has a lot more to do with feelings or desires or whatever I might feel in the moment. And the message that he is preaching to them back then is that love is actually a person. And what love actually is, it is a self-sacrificial giving of oneself to death. Because if God is love and Jesus is God, then our definition for love is that we would give ourselves to one another to the point of pouring out even our lives. This has been the most convicting thing for me personally. Because in the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples, John included, 
the secret to people coming to know Jesus. He tells them, you want to know the secret to evangelism? Love each other. That's how people are going to know that this, this faith, this religion is legit. And so as I'm reading through John, I'm convicted because I think about like, if somebody who's not a Christian were to look at my life and look at how I interact with you guys, would they see something that could only be described as self-sacrificing love to the point of me being willing to die? And so I'm convicted. (laughs) And I think there's beauty in that in this book. And so John's message again and again is that all these categories really come together and are defined by a person named Jesus. And that really comes down to in the very last bits of 1 John that he preaches. He tells them in the very last verse, and we'll, we'll wrap up with this, the very last verse of 1 John, he says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. God is light. God is love. And all that really boils down to for John, God is Jesus. And there is no other God. And what he desires for the early church, and I think even today, is for us to know what are the things that we are meant to be unflinching about? Like, what are the hills that we're meant to die on? And really, the two that seem to come out in John is that there is no truth except in Jesus, and that love is defined by him as a person and what he did on the earth. And so, as we close today, my desire, I'll just tell you that it goes, that we as a people would, we would adopt these things. They wouldn't just be like up in our minds, but they would actually become these short phrases that we would internalize and live, right? If they're John's core memories, I want them to start becoming ours. And so we'll keep preaching through these series, but I want you to hear that chorus, that rhythm again and again and again, all the while bringing us back to Jesus. God is light, God is love, and God is Jesus, the true God. And so with that, uh, I want to close us in a time of prayer and begin to introduce, like we always spend some time here as we respond together by taking communion. And there's, there's something that I want to say particularly about communion today. And then I'll, I'll make space for us to pray. This is for those who call themselves followers of Jesus. And what I mean by that is the act of taking bread and taking wine right, and eating it and drinking it, is a communal act of saying explicitly, internally and externally to the world, uh, that we be- I believe there is no truth but in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To drink of the wine is to be a, a communal representation that you by your own words would say, together with all God's people throughout all history, that there is no greater love than this, that Jesus laid his life down for his friends. And so as you come today and you take and eat and drink, and as as we sing and as we worship and pray together, 
I want us just to begin to ask the Holy Spirit, which of those phrases all together, what parts of it need to speak to my life today? And so I'll just invite you now, you can close your eyes, bow your heads, take a moment, just stillness. And, and, and I'm gonna pray, because Father, in the end of the day, try to open up this word and preach and hoping that Jesus, you would show up in a way that is just so real to people. But at the end of the day, I'm just another sinner in need of your grace like everybody else in this room. And so what I'm asking is that you take whatever bits and pieces from this that would point them to you and let them sink deep. Everything else, just let it fade, fade into black. And so I pray for those who need to hear either of these truths that you are the light, that you are love, and that you'd speak to them even now in the stillness in a way that would be so real to them. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.